Hey, you're listening to episode eight of the Ask a Freelancer podcast. Ask a Freelancer is brought to you by Cushion, a simple forecasting app for freelancers. Cushion gives you a bird's eye view of your schedule and income so you can plan months ahead and reach your financial goals for the year. Learn more about Cushion at cushionapp.com. So this is how it works. You send your freelancing questions to Cushion at Cushion App on Twitter. And then we use our magic algorithms to record your voice asking the question. Uh, So this is you guys asking the question. Let's jump into question one. Have you... Always freelanced. Okay, so the question is, have I always been a freelancer? The answer to that is, yes, I have always freelanced from right before I finished college to now. Early on, though, I did have some part-time jobs off and on to pay bills and such. I was born a freelancer, which I think is at the heart of this question. Are you, are you a freelancer or not? Just on your pure cellular level. Is it like you're born with it or you can learn it or whatever? And I think that there's essentially three types of folks when you're considering this question. You have the first type, which is type A. And we're not really going to talk about them because type A thrive in work regardless of almost anything. They just work super hard. They're excellent in everything that they do. I don't understand them. I can't speak to that. They just seem alien to me. So we'll put those aside. Then you have who we'll call hunters and gatherers. Uh, So your gatherer is someone who likes to be part of a team. They like to be... Uh, They get their sense of fulfillment and meaning in their work by working together, the security of the group. They don't mind doing things that feel task-oriented if they can see how they're connected with the group and they can see how it's connected to the overall purpose of where the tribe is going and to see the tribe thriving. So they don't mind gathering the wood and the kindling. They don't mind preparing the table. They don't mind uh, cleaning out the stalls. They don't mind any of that. They actually like it, especially if they're alongside of other people. Uh, They're working together and they're, they're all coming together for the greater good. So I would call those the gatherers. Uh, And they get a sense of meaning and purpose by working together, coming together, and and seeing the end that way. Now the hunters, those folks need to see a direct correlation between their efforts and the end game, which is putting food on the table. Those are the hunters. They want to be on the front lines, out in the hunt, with the arrows, killing the beasts, and bringing it home and slapping it on the table and say, cook this. And those are the hunters. And I think your natural, on a cellular level, freelancers are the hunters. And for me personally, 
It's always been like that. Even in employment, I'm a bad employee. I don't, I can't connect me moving this widget with an overall good and a paycheck. It just seems so disconnected to me. I need to feel that pressure and the weight on my back. This is make or break. The more effort you put in, the more benefit you reap. And I like being out there alone on the hunt. I'm thrilled by that. That feels fantastic to me. And I think that's just a personality thing. I don't think that's something you necessarily learn or uh, grow in. I think that's just a, it is or it isn't. I have a really hard time doing the team thing, doing the my little part. Uh, you know, I, I just don't thrive in that way. And so the real takeaway here is if you're the type of person that really gets a sense of meaning, purpose, security from being alongside others on a team and you really enjoy that, I think there's a real temptation in our current climate uh, of, of, of the workplace to look over into the freelance world and think the grass is always greener and think, man, look at that freedom. But it comes with all kinds of costs and it takes a certain type of person. Now, on the flip side, we can talk about the type A's or even the people that have turned themselves into type A, learned how to uh, drive for excellence and, and be excellent in all places and just kind of kick butt no matter what. If you can be that kind of person, it doesn't really matter which you choose. But if you're naturally the gatherer, if you're naturally like to be on a team, like to be part of that uh, you know, teamwork scenario, then I would say just go ahead and do that. Now, if you're a hunter and you're miserable in an organization, I would encourage you to do whatever it takes to get out there on the hunt because it's so much more fulfilling for those people. So many of the freelancers I meet are those folks that would call themselves bad employees, great freelancers. Uh, and if that's you and you've been in employment for as long as you remember, I encourage you to figure out a plan to make that leap happen. Do you think freelancing helps you or hurts you in staying creatively relevant? So this next question is, do you think freelancing full-time helps or hurts you in staying creatively relevant? Okay, I think I can answer this one pretty simply. I think regular employment in terms of creativity is like taking public transit. It's like taking the, 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 the city bus, okay? So it's super cheap. It's not the fastest way to get from one place to another. It's not the most powerful uh, vehicle, right, creatively. So it'll get you where you want to go, but it's not going to get you there as quick. Uh, therefore, you're not going to be quite as relevant. Now, on the flip side, I think freelance is like a crazy sports car. It's a gas guzzler. It's the gas guzzling sports car. And the gas is money. Okay? And so if you have the money 
and you're a freelancer, you can be incredibly creatively re relevant. Like the decision make making process is all up to you. You don't have to go through any channels. You get inspired. You can make something that day and put it out there in your company. You can make quick turns. You can go zero to 60, no problem. And that kind of flexibility and agility makes you very impressive in terms of creativity. However, here is the disclaimer. Money. Money. So, employment, getting on the bus, it's cheap. Low stakes. So you can go in there day after day. You feel that security and that margin, that safety. You need safety, margin, and security to be at your best creatively. Here's why. Because creativity happens, scientifically speaking, when you're at play. And you can only be at play if you have time and space to do things that are inconsequential. The most creative that you'll be is when you have time and space to make mistakes just for fun. And one of the things that happens when you're a creative uh, freelancer is that when money gets tight, because freelancing is expensive, that gas guzzler, it takes a lot of cash to keep that thing going at full speed all the time. And if you don't have the cash, you're not going anywhere. So when the funds are dry and you got to make ends meet, you are never going to be less creative because you will have zero margin for play. Because every decision you make is make or break. And when you're locked up like that, I know lots of fantastic creative people that have been at their lowest creative point because they're freelancing with no money. And they start having to play it extremely safe, which locks up their business. And so if you can have great cash flow and you can be secure financially as a freelancer, I don't think there's a faster, more powerful way to do creativity because you don't have to meet with a group of people. You don't have to do meetings. You don't have to get the uh, you know, 50 levels of sign-off to make your next piece of work. You're the boss. You make it happen. You don't like that client, you fire him. You don't need anybody's permission. You can be so agile creatively. But it's so much easier to feel that sense of security when you've got a backer of a decent size business and you're full-time employed. And so I think that that answers that pretty sufficiently. Next up, we have a super special guest to answer our last question, creative director Dan Mall. Dan is the founder and director of the design collaborative powerhouse, Super Friendly. Without further ado, here's Dan. Everyone's talking about value-based pricing, but how can you apply that thinking to customers with smaller budgets? Well, thanks for that question, Cookie Bat Monster Man. 
So many people assume that value-based pricing means charging as much as you can whenever possible, but it actually doesn't mean that. A value-based price is one where you're charging appropriately for the value you deliver. So if you're delivering a ton of value, sure, it should be a big payday. But if the value is small, it's okay for the price to be small too. Now, I think saying customers with small budgets isn't really a helpful way to think about it. So let's create a hypothetical small budget scenario. Your customer says, I have a $1,000 budget and I want a new website. Now, some of you listening might love a project with that budget, and others of you may hate it. For the purposes of this example, let's say that that's lower than the project budgets you typically get. Now, there's a couple layers to this. The first layer is that there are some customers that understand what value they're asking for and some customers that just don't. So your first jobs are to understand what value the client is really looking for and then also to communicate that back to them. Now when a customer says, I need a new website, your first question should be, well, why do you want a new website? Now you'll hear answers like, well, the site needs to be faster or the site needs to better reflect our brand. Just keep asking why. Those aren't real, real answers. Eventually you'll get to a real answer, something like, well, the site needs to make a million dollars next year or we're going to go out of business. Now we're talking. Now you understand the value that a new website can bring this particular customer, and you need to say that back to them. So here's what you say. So do I have it right that your expectation is that a great new website for you should be able to earn you an extra million next year and keep you afloat? Now if they confirm that, the next layer is about what they choose to do with that info. So even if they agree that a new site should make them a million bucks, they might only want to still spend $1,000. After all, who wouldn't want a 1,000% return on investment? Or they might say, you know, now that you put it like that, I'd be more willing to invest something like $50,000 into making a million dollars if you can guarantee that. So it's really all about how you frame it and how well you sell that framing. I've turned a $2,000 budget into an $80,000 project before, just with different framing. Now sure, it meant putting the project on hold for a year while the customer moved internal budgets around and raised the money, but all of that is par for the course when you're doing value-based pricing. So all that is to say that your best course of action with a quote-unquote small budget, if there's a lot of value to be gained for the customer, is to expose that value and reframe it for them. All right, so what about when there's not a lot of value? So let's say instead of needing to make an extra million dollars, they just want a new website because it's time for a refresh. And you know maybe there's not much more reason than that. Well, that says that there's likely not a lot of value in there for them because nothing really would happen if you didn't do the project. And so if the project really isn't important to them, then it doesn't really need to be that important to you, so you don't need to work that hard on it, which would make it fine if you didn't make a lot of money on it. You see what I'm saying? I'd gladly take a $1,000 project where I'm picking a well-designed theme for their already built-in WordPress site, and if I can do so in between the gaps of a project ending and another one starting. So here's the bottom line. If you're doing something that's really hard to do, or if you're doing something that only you can do, you should get paid a lot to do it. But... If you're doing something that anyone can do or something that's easy to do, you shouldn't get paid a lot to do it. Your threshold for delivering a lot of value without capturing a lot of it back is really up to you, but I can tell you that I don't like doing hard work without a heck of a reward. There's nothing to stop you from only charging $1,000 for winning your customer a million dollar more revenue, and heck, maybe you even should do it if you need the money, but I like being well compensated for doing the difficult stuff so that I can be really flexible on the easy stuff. Being able to be a good service provider to customers with a lot of money as well as customers with a little bit of it, that's the freedom that value-based pricing gives you. Makes sense, Dan. You're welcome, Cookie Bat Monster Man. Thanks, Dan. What a great insight. I loved that. That was amazing. You can find Dan's 
Design Collaborative, super friendly, at superfriend.ly. That concludes another episode of Ask a Freelancer. Don't forget to check out Cushion at cushionapp.com. I'm your host, Andy J. Miller. You can find my illustration portfolio and my other podcast, Creative Pep Talk, at www.andyj.pizza. Thanks to Nate Utesh and his band Metavari for the tunes. You can listen to more at soundcloud.com slash metavari. Don't forget to send us your freelance questions on Twitter at CushionApp, and it may just be answered on the next episode. See you later.